Good morning. I'm Pastor Andrew, one of the pastors here, and it's my privilege to be looking at the camera lens into all of your homes and for the several that are here this morning. Before we get started, I did want to uh, take a moment to look at our 30 days of prayer for the Muslim World Prayer Guide. We are entering the last week of praying for Muslims during the month of Ramadan. And today, we are praying for cultural Muslims. Uh, you may have heard the term cultural Christians, just those who have kind of grown up in a, cult, in a Christian-y, Christian-ish culture, but don't really go to church, uh, don't subscribe to um, doctrinal statements or anything. And the same thing is true with many Muslims uh, the world over. And so uh, today we want to pray for cultural Muslims, those who've grown up in, in Muslim cultures and Muslim families, but don't uh, attend the mosque regularly and don't um, really practice their faith. So I'm going to go ahead and pray for cultural Muslims right now, and then we'll go ahead and get started. Father, we do ask for especially those cultural Muslims that we know uh, in uh, our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our schools. Pray, Lord, that you would help us to love them well and to reach out to them, that we might show them the love of Jesus, and that we might reintroduce them to faith, but into a, a true faith. Lord, we ask that um, we would examine our faith so that our witness is authentic, so that we would know what we believe, so that we might communicate to cultural Muslims what they believe. We pray for mission organizations that are specifically targeting cultural Muslims to try to share the gospel of Jesus with them. Lord, we pray that they would be successful. We pray for revival. We pray that many Muslims would come to know you as their Lord and their Savior. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, we're... Closing in on the end of First Thessalonians, so if you'll turn with me in your Bible or open your app to First Thessalonians chapter 5, we are going to get through the first 11 verses today of that chapter. So First Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. I've entitled the sermon today, Acting Like the End is Near. Acting Like the End is Near, so we'll talk about that after we read. Paul wrote to the Thessalonian church 2,000 years ago, these words. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. I was able to look at several different resources talking about what Christians have done in the past two millennia about pandemics, about epidemics, about plagues, uh, the bubonic plague. Um, there's some famous plagues early on in the Roman Empire that Christians served uh, non-Christians and Christians alike during. 
Um, there's all kinds of opportunities to look at history and see what Christians have done in times of infection, in times of death and sickness. Also during those times, there are spikes in interest of the end times, the end of the world, which makes sense. Um, I saw someone post on social media about we have a pandemic, there's murder hornets in Washington, there's financial job losses, there's all kinds of things going on. They said, are we in the end times? And the obvious answer is yes. But maybe not like what they were asking. Um, The scripture tells us throughout the New Testament that we are in the end times because when Jesus died and rose again, he ushered in a new era. He ushered in the end. And that might not sound 2,000 years may not sound like the end to you, but in terms of what has happened in human history, understood from a biblical point of view, we are in the end times. Another evidence of that is the Orange County Register in today's paper started a series on the Norco bank robbery from 1980. Now, I wasn't around, so I don't remember that, but I read the article this morning, and um, the two men that did the bank robbery, there were hundreds of rounds fired, um, the bank was robbed, and these two young men were disillusioned with society, but they were also totally obsessed with biblical eschatology, the rapture, the return of Christ, the end of the world, the Antichrist, all of these things which are in the Bible. But their, their ideas were so skewed that it led them to, to the idea that we need to rob a bank so that we can afford to buy land in Utah or Wyoming so that we can hunker down and kind of wait out the storm, the apocalyptic storm that is coming. And so that led to an amazing bank robbery, a loss of, uh, there was injury, loss of life, loss of money, of course, and um, just an incredible story and a sad story at that. And it just goes to show that we are um, easily induced to, to think about the end, to think about judgment. Now, there's also times in life where we don't think about the end at all. We think about new beginnings. We think about what's next. Many uh, seniors across America are having to figure out how to do that in a different way than they had planned as they think about what's next in their life. But we think about the end, and we, we kind of have jokes about it. We have movies about it. We have satirical movies about it. And we talk about the end. Maybe we make fun of prophets that are holding signs that say the end is near. And maybe, maybe there is a little bit of uh, um, a right way of thinking to kind of mock that. But in reality, the end is near and we should consider our life. In the Middle Ages, many Christians and scholars would keep a skull on their desk. Not because they were morbid like we would be if we did that but because they wanted to not forget that life was fleeting, the end was coming, and they needed to work in light of that. So the skull on their desk, which they looked at every day, reminded them of what they were and who they were and what was going to happen, namely death. And if that doesn't get us excited about today, I don't know what will. But we do need to confront these issues, and they are confronted in our passage in First Thessalonians chapter 5. Now, last week, Pastor Ron talked about uh, the previous six verses in chapter 4, which speaks to what is known as the rapture. And he mentioned there are many different views on these. Uh, last week's worship folder had what our church believes. Um, and, and there's some sense of flow from chapter 4 here into chapter 5. It's difficult at times to understand what the connection is, but we want to do a little bit of that today. But I don't want to lose 
the, the forest for the trees here. I want to see exactly what Paul is doing. You'll notice that the last verse from Pastor Ron's sermon last week, verse 18, chapter 4, ends with the, the urging, the command even, to encourage one another. That he wanted the church in Thessalonica to hear these words and then to encourage one another. You'll notice if you cheat and go down to verse 11, you'll see that he ends almost the same exact way from this passage, to encourage one another. So if we get this wrong, we get super excited about speculative things, about timelines and charts, which are helpful and necessary. But if we lose the fact that Paul was doing this for encouragement's sake, then we've lost the tone of what Paul was doing. We don't want to lose that today. Okay? So in, in thinking about that, let's, let's dive in and take a look at a few interesting things. The first two words in verse 1 are now concerning. Um, that, that already happened up above in chapter 4, verse 9, and it is a very common phrase in 1 Corinthians as Paul deals with questions that have come from the Corinthians. Could these be questions that have come from the Thessalonians? That's very likely. Timothy has brought back a letter and brought back news from what's happening in Thessalonica as Paul and Silas are in Corinth and they were waiting to hear what was going on. And apparently there was confusion. Paul had to leave rather quickly from Thessalonica because there was a mob forming and the the Christians in Thessalonica hurried him out of there. And so he didn't, in one sense, finish the class. He didn't finish the semester. He didn't finish all of what he was going to teach. And so there was some confusion. Some of that probably concerned some of what he taught about the end. But here in in verse 1 of chapter 5, he's actually referring to things that apparently he did teach them. He did get to this subject before he left because at the end of verse 1, he says, you have no need to have anything written to you. Of course, then he continues to go on as Paul does. Um, but he, he is reminding them, you already know this. He's trying to kind of calm down any hysteria Um, People had died in the meantime, and these new Christians did not know exactly what was going on, and so he wanted to help them. No, 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 you know what's going on. You know what I taught you. Stick to it. And he uses a phrase in verse 1 that is, um, it's not code, although Bible codes are often what come to mind when we think about the end times. There's no code here, but there is kind of some technical language, times and seasons. You'll see that in verse 1. Now concerning the times and the seasons... He's talking about two words in Greek for time. They both, one is chronos, okay, and the other one is kairos. And they they refer to two different kinds of of thinking about time. But that really usually takes us to what Jesus said in Acts chapter 1 verse 7. When the disciples are around him, he's about to ascend back to the Father and they want to know about the times and the seasons, about what's going to happen next, is the kingdom coming? And Jesus says, it's not for you to know the times, and the seasons. This language is also borrowed from the book of Daniel in chapter 2, verse 21, where it's mentioned as the times and the seasons where we're talking about prophecy and future and what's going to happen. So it's interesting to note that as we, as we tend to get speculative and, and want to kind of uh, move into who's the Antichrist, who could he be, is he alive already, all of these things, um, we want to make sure that we're anchored in the fact of what Jesus said about the times and the seasons and what Paul said about the times and the seasons. Namely, Jesus said, it is not for you to worry about. Now, it does not mean that we shouldn't look into the scripture and try to put 
piece things together. And that's what we do. We look at various parts of Scripture and try to piece together what the authors are saying. But if it becomes an obsession to the point that we lose the encouragement and we lose the assurance of what is happening, then we've gone too far. Jesus said, you don't know the time. You don't know the hour. It's not for you to know. And if it's not for you to know, then it's not for you to worry about. That's important for us to think about. You know, earlier on in the last decade, um, there was, um, there, it seems like this is always happening, but there was a major, major um, figure in the Bay Area who put up signs everywhere about the, the date that Jesus was coming back. Um, and and the, the, the sad thing about that is, as has happened throughout history, people believed him and they acted on it. They sold things. They sold property. They sold their possessions and they waited. And guess what? Jesus didn't come back. And then the date was revised. Oops, got it wrong. Now, I don't know for the life of me why anyone would believe someone who missed it the first time on something that big. On something that huge. Why would you believe again? But sometimes we're gullible people, aren't we? And they believed again and Jesus did not come back again. Brothers and sisters, if the Bible says, if Jesus said, you don't know, you can't know, you won't know, stop it. Stay with what we're taught. Now, Paul moves on and says in verse 2 what they're fully aware of. He's trying to encourage them. You already know some of what you need to know here. Look at verse 2. You yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. A thief in the night. Now, the day of the Lord is Old Testament language. It occurs throughout the prophets. The prophets repeatedly come back to the day of the Lord or the day of God. In the New Testament, they also pick up this language, the day of the Lord, and sometimes it's called the day of, of, the, of Christ. And, and what's, what's interesting about that is that what we would have thought in the Old Testament was the day of Yahweh, the day of, um, of God. Now, Paul and Peter give that designation to Jesus himself which implies that Jesus is Yahweh coming to fulfill the Old Testament prophecy. Uh, one scholar said this, What is remarkable from the standpoint of Paul is that the day of Yahweh predictions find their fulfillment in the coming of the Lord Jesus. All of the day references are indirect but unmistakable affirmation of Christ's deity. If Jesus can fulfill the Old Testament prophecies of God coming back, then the syllogism goes, then he is God. Jesus is going to fulfill this, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord in the Old Testament is, is creatively and uh, colorfully described in many of the prophets. Um, it, it is a day of destruction. It is a day of judgment. It is a day of cataclysm. It is a day of signs in the heavens. It is a, a day of wailing, a day of gnashing of teeth, because it is in a, in a way that we, we can't really disconnect anymore from the Terminator franchise, but it is Judgment Day. And by the way, Terminator borrowed it from the Bible, okay? So let's give credit where credit is due. But Judgment Day is the day of the Lord. And one of the questions that we have is, is what Paul is talking about in the beginning of chapter 5 the same event in the verses that he just talked about at the end of chapter 4? And many Christians would say yes. Oh, we don't have time today to dive into a lot of that. Um, but we, we hold loosely the contention that this is the next step. That the, the rapture that we talked about last week 
is Jesus coming into the clouds, retrieving, rescuing the believers on earth. We then put together pieces from, from Daniel, from Revelation, from Second Thessalonians, that there is a period called the Great Tribulation. And after that time, at the end of that time, is when the day of the Lord comes. And so um, we can talk about this later offline, but the rapture and the day of the Lord are related but separate events. Or some would say the rapture begins the day of the Lord, where we understand it maybe not as a 24-hour day, but as a time period. All that being said, the, the main picture here is the picture of a thief in the night. Okay, And for some people of a certain age, that automatically conjures up um, ridiculously high-quality movies. Um, one which is called The Thief in the Night. Um, my favorite song growing up was by the Christian rock group Petra called Grave Robber and prominently featured the Thief in the Night picture. But the Thief in the Night actually comes from a picture that Jesus talked about in Matthew 24. And by the way, if you want to see where Paul is getting his information here, I would suggest if you have the technology to do this or you just want to get multiple Bibles out or do something Put Matthew 24 right next to 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 and read them one after the other or integrate it together and notice all of the borrowing that Paul is doing. Paul is not making anything up. He's just taking what Jesus taught okay, and contextualizing it for the Thessalonians. All these pictures, almost all these pictures, are borrowed from Jesus's what's called the Olivet Discourse. Discourse. So you'll remember that a few days before Jesus died... Um, Jesus and his disciples go up on the Mount of Olives. They overlook Jerusalem and the temple. And the disciples ask some questions of Jesus, and he begins to tell them about the end. So much of what is here is borrowed from Matthew 24. And it's interesting to note that we have this picture of a thief that continues throughout. And the picture of the thief is connected to nighttime, which is connected to darkness, which is connected to sleep which is connected to drunkenness. All of these, all of these pictures that we see here in the, first chapter, in, in, in the first few verses of chapter 5 are connected by the thief in the night. How is the day of the Lord going to come? Like a thief. How does a thief come? The thief does not schedule a time to show up and rob you. Right? That's not, the whole point here is a thief creeps around a thief cases the joint so that the thief knows when to come back when you're either not around or when you're asleep generally when it's dark so that they can steal burgle whatever (laughs) they're going to come in that way and so in the very same way the day of the lord is going to come unexpectedly and if it's coming unexpectedly folks again we don't have a date that those those don't fit together right you can't have a date for something that's unexpected And so the picture is that Jesus' return will be a surprise. It will be a surprise. It will come when is least expected. When is it going to come? Verse 3 elaborates on that. It's going to come when everybody is thinking there is peace and security. What that tells us is that the people will not be expecting Jesus' return or judgment because they think everything is great. And see, that's, that's how things have been in America for the last decade. Um, low jobless claims, um, people's 401ks doing really well over the last decade. The economy was um, really doing records. And all of a sudden, 
um, we have we have seen a complete reversal of some of those numbers. And now we begin to think about the end because we have indications of it. It seems that when Jesus returns, there will be no indications. There is peace. There is security. There's no war. The society is doing well. Things are okay. Perhaps we might even want to say economically fine. And, and it, we, we see that peace and security. It also sounds like it's borrowing from the book of Jeremiah, but it's almost positive. We're almost positive that Paul is actually taking a slogan from the Roman Empire, turning it on its head and saying, there's another empire coming. There's judgment coming. The Romans frequently used the terms peace and security. It was their propaganda to promote the Pax Romana. If you've learned world history, you may remember that phrase, the peace of Rome. The Pax Romana had spread throughout the Roman Empire. And so Rome, in order to boost itself, in order to make itself great and known, said there is peace and security. That's what we have. And so Paul is kind of sneaking that in there and saying when people feel really confident like the Roman Empire, that is when sudden destruction will come upon them. I want you to note how Paul is talking about what's happening. He doesn't say while you are saying. He doesn't say sudden destruction will come upon you. He says while people are saying. And the destruction will come upon them and they will not escape. So he seems to be referring to unbelievers. And he's going to make that point more clear here in a minute. But now we have another picture. And this is a picture that Jesus used as well. The thief in the night came first. And now we have labor pains coming upon a pregnant woman. Now we have to kind of erase everything that we know from the last 200 years about pregnancy, trimesters, development, all the apps that tell you how big your baby is, the size of a whatever fruit, vegetable, item thing you have to think nobody at the time had the technology or the science to know some of those things that well and there were the the medicine was so different the cleanliness was so different that they there was not a, a way of tracking pregnancy like there is today there was very little contraception and so this was uh, this is kind of hard for us to, to wrap our minds around but labor pains came unexpectedly. The thief of the night comes unexpectedly and labor pains come all of a sudden. Some of you ladies have experienced that. Uh, All of a sudden your water breaks or all of a sudden contractions come out of nowhere. Okay, but um, the the picture here is that the labor pains come immediately and they come and they come um, with painfully and they come when you're least expecting it. And then Paul says you won't escape. (laughs) Just as when the labor pains start, something is going to happen the, the people that are being judged will not escape the judgment. Um, and the tragic thing here is that many, many, many women throughout history have, have not looked forward to those labor pains. They have looked with fear and anxiety because so many of the people they knew died soon after the labor pains started. We have such... We're so blessed with the medical breakthroughs that we have today. Listen to this. Childbirth in the age of Paul was risky in the extreme, and the large number of women who died while giving birth lowered the life expectancy of women in the Roman Empire to somewhere in their 20s or 30s. 
I believe the U.S. life expectancy for females right now is somewhere in the low 80s. That's three to four times as long as the average woman could expect to live in the Roman Empire. So when you think labor pains, we think, oh, the baby's coming. Many, many people in the Roman Empire, the labor pains, am I going to die? Husbands, am I going to lose my wife? And so this is the image. Don't think of the the images of Lamaze or all the fun stuff that you did in training, all of those things. That's not what we're thinking about here. We're thinking about, oh my goodness, death could be right around the corner. So the the picture is the day of the Lord is going to come unexpectedly. It's bringing destruction and you are not ready. And by you, I mean to say that Paul seems to be speaking about unbelievers because as we move into our second point, which is that Christians live in the daylight, vigilant and ready, we see that he's going to contrast they, them, people with you, brothers and sisters. So point number two is Christians live in the daylight, vigilant and ready. And I combine day and light Um, because they go together pretty well, but they kind of combine the images that Paul is using. Paul then says in verse 4, but you, coming back to the Thessalonians, you are not in darkness. The thief in the night comes in the dark. In the dark, you don't know what's happening. You can't see. It's unexpected. The opposite is light, which reveals. It is much harder to sneak up on somebody in the daylight, right? Right? Um, not as many of these things are planned in the daytime. Most crime happens in the night. That's an obvious thing that we're used to. But what Paul wants the believers in Thessalonica to know, and he wants us to know now, is that we live in the day, so we have an advantage. We have an advantage of being in the daylight. And that, advance, that advantage does not lead us to boast or to brag or to, to grow um, bored. That advantage rather makes us vigilant and ready. Because we can see, because we do have the light of day, we now know how to be vigilant, how to be prepared, how to be ready, how to be waiting. So look at verse 4. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. The implication is, believers, followers of Jesus, will not be surprised in the same way. They will not be surprised in the same way. Now, they might be surprised as to I'm walking down the street and, oh, it's Judgment Day. <laughs> okay, But it is, it is a, an idea that we know it's coming. We don't know when, but we know what. Whereas the unbeliever has no idea what is coming nor when it is coming. We do know that judgment is coming. We don't know exactly when, but we should not be surprised when it does. Verse 5 continues. He says, You are children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. The contrast is stark. The contrast is easy to understand. So as he moves to verse 6, he says, If that is the case, if we are of the light, if we are of the day, then there follows application for us. We don't just say, Yeah, we're in the day. We know what's happening. No, there's actions to take. So then, verse 6, right? If this, so then this. So then what? Let us not sleep. Now, we've got to stop here because 
Last week, Pastor Ron used, uh, t- t- taught us about asleep, and it's used in the first three verses of last week's uh, passage. Asleep, asleep, asleep. And Pastor Ron talked about how it, it was a synonym for death. It's another way of, of talking about being dead. And last week, it referred to those who were asleep in Christ. However, he uses sleep here, and, and he actually bounces back between two different Greek words that don't translate well into English as different, but there, there's two different ones. And, and this one, he says, basically, let us not sleep. And he doesn't mean let us not die. Okay, so we have to take the context here. That, that wouldn't make any sense based on the argument he's making. And he's also not decrying sleep, okay? So he's not saying stop sleeping so much, okay? He's not, he's not saying sleep, I'll sleep when I'm dead, which some people have been known to say perhaps maybe. What he, is, what he is saying is, in, in the way that we don't want to be asleep when we're not supposed to, right? It's, it's when you're found to be sleeping when you're not supposed to. So the picture is of the disciples in the garden, right? The Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is sweating. He's, he's praying. He's asking the Father for strength. And Peter and the bros are over here. Just, they're not supposed to be asleep. This is the worst possible time to sleep. Now, God made us to sleep, right? I mean, God made us to sleep. Um, it says that in the Psalms, that he gives his beloved sleep. We have to sleep. But the, the picture here is not of the positive recharge your batteries kind of sleep. The picture here is of sleeping when you're not supposed to. So let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. So the idea is, Christians, that we need to be awake, vigilant. We have a job to do. We have work to do in this time before the coming of the Lord before judgment arrives. So we're not to sleep. Verse 7, why? Because those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. So you see how the, the light, dark, thief, um, uh, night, sleeping, all the, all the pictures, all the words are kind of going on this motif of darkness. So, so the idea is that what happens at night are bad things. In the cover of darkness, um, when someone is drunk, they're drunk at night. Now, you can think of all kinds of uh, ways to battle against that. But for the most part, right, people drink generally at night. And they, a lot of times they drink to get drunk because they can then go to sleep and try to sleep it off. Right? That, that, those are the images that all come together here. And so the, the idea is we need to be vigilant and ready. It's like the parable that Jesus told of the ten virgins in Matthew 25. Um, they have their candles, and they're supposed to be waiting for the bridegroom, and they fall asleep. Um, and, and they fall asleep exactly the wrong time. <laughs> so the, the idea is, Christian, be awake, be vigilant, be ready, be looking, be seeing what is going on. And I also think that he doesn't just use the drunk metaphor as a metaphor. I think there's also a sense of command here. There, there's no place for drunkenness in the Christian life. Um, there was lots and lots of drinking in, in Roman pagan worship. Um, there were gods of wine and vineyards. Dionysius was one of them that was celebrated. And how you celebrate the god of wine? Well, you, you take part in his fruit. And so you get drunk to release your inhibitions and do stupid things in the worship of this god. There is, there's evidence that they actually worship Dionysus in Thessalonica to a great degree. So the, the idea is not merely this, it's just a metaphor. There's also behind the metaphor a reality of, Christian, you are not to be drunk. 
You are not to give over control of your body, the body that Christ died for, to a substance that makes you lose control of yourself. So we think of sober, I think sometimes as like, oh, I'm, I'm six years sober, which is fantastic. That's great news. But the picture of sober is being seriously able to make your own decisions. It is closely related to self-control. So Christian, if you have a drinking problem, you, you actually discredit the metaphor here because your act of getting drunk is, is feeding into the opposite picture of what we want here. We don't want to be out of control and drunk. We want to be ready, prepared, vigilant, able to be at our post. And that, that leads into the last section, verses 8 through 11. Christians look forward confidently, armed with faith, hope, and love. Christians look forward confidently, armed with faith, hope, and love. And so the picture of drunkenness and darkness plays into being a soldier. The soldier who is drunk on duty is in huge trouble. The soldier who has responsibility of defense, of being vigilant, of being armed, of being ready, and they fall asleep on the job, that is not a mere oops. That's a court-martial waiting to happen. So, Christian, soldier, the picture here, the breastplate, the helmet. You'll notice that that sounds very similar to Ephesians chapter 6. Paul is borrowing that from Isaiah 59, where Isaiah called Yahweh... Uh, the one who had, was donning the armor, that Yahweh was the one who was going to fight. So it's almost like we have the armor of the Lord, um, not just as like these principles or this like fun sermon series, but that we actually have armor from God himself that he gives to us so that we might live the way we're supposed to. Verse 8 says, Since we belong to the day, again, since, let us be sober. We have armor. We are in the army of the Lord. We need to act like it. We must look forward confidently. See, the, the opposite of the night and the slinking around and the thief, the opposite of that is the responsible daytime citizen who is doing their job, who is doing their work. Now, if you work at night, thank you for working at night. Don't mess up the metaphor here. Don't take it too far, okay? You're like, I work at night. Yes, you do. We're glad you work at night with electricity, <laughs> Okay, I bet there's not a lot of you working at night with uh, torches uh, on the walls. Okay, the the idea here is that the the opposite is the daytime. In the daytime, we don't sleep unless you work at night. So see, yeah, that that just totally throws off the whole metaphor. But we 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 are awake in the day. We are we're sober in the day. We can see what's going on in the day. So Christian, that is what we're called to do. It is daytime. The night is coming. And so while it is day, we have a job to do. In order to do that job, we must do what is necessary to do it well. Now we get into this interesting picture of awake and asleep again, because as we get into verse 9, we see this, this very interesting picture that Paul is reassuring the Thessalonians. God has not destined us for wrath. The Christian has no more wrath to look forward to. The wrath of God, and by wrath, I don't mean some losing it, going off the handle kind of craziness, but it is this sustained um, anger, righteous anger at sin. Do you, do you get righteously angry at sin? When you, when you see it, when you observe it, when you hear about it on the news, when you watch a movie, when you read a book, when you see it happen in your own life? There is a, a thin 
line, but it's a good place to be if you can get there, of righteous anger. Sin is horrific. It is rebellion. It is wrong. And it is right to be angry at sin. Side note, we're not very good at that balance, though, are we? That's where we need the Holy Spirit's help in order to find the right place to be righteously angry. God is righteously angry at our sin. And so because the Christian is not destined for wrath, what is the Christian destined for? Salvation. He says in the end of the verse, to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now here's the picture. God must punish sin or he's not a good God. He can't sweep it under the rug. He can't just excuse it. God must deal with sin. Sin will be dealt with. And it will will be dealt with in one of two ways. It will be dealt with in hell for all eternity for the sin of rebelling against an infinite God who is infinitely good and loving. Or it will be taken on the broad shoulders of Jesus Christ on the cross for you and me. The wrath of God poured out on Jesus means there is no more left for you and me. When Jesus says, take this cup from me, that picture is of the Old Testament, the cup of wrath. You see it in, the Reve- in Revelation too, the wine that is poured out. The idea is that, Christian, you don't have to drink the cup because Jesus drank it for us. He drank it for us. There is no wrath for us. Judgment day is not for us to be judged and thrown into hell. Judgment day is for those who have not believed to stand before the Lord and to be judged for what they have done. When we stand before the Lord, we plead the blood of Jesus. You're right. Satan's standing there at the bench accusing us, and we say, yes, yes, yes. Everything Satan said there is true except for one thing, and Jesus is the one who took my punishment. There's no more left. That's good news. Verse 10 continues, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Now we have the awake or asleep thing again. So what is he talking about? Which sleepy metaphor are we talking about here? And some people say what verse 10 is saying is that because Jesus died for us, whether we are awake and vigilant or whether we are asleep and we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing, but we're still covered by the blood of Jesus, that we will live with him eventually. I don't think that's what's happening here. I think Paul is is switching and going back to what he said in chapter 4. I think what he's saying is, so whether you're awake and alive or whether you're asleep and dead, the promise is you'll be with him. So that death can't separate us, right? Romans 8, death can't separate us from the Lord. If we die as believers, we are in the presence of the Lord. If we are alive as believers, when Jesus comes back, we are present with the Lord. There's nothing that can separate us. That is the idea, I think, that is happening here. Because that's what Jesus died for. Jesus died for, this verse said, Jesus died for us to be with God. We can't be with God on our own. We can't do enough good deeds to hope that the scale tilts in our direction. And whoo, man, sure I'm glad I'm a good person. Because deep down, every one of us knows we're not good people. And so the idea here is that Jesus died for us. Savannah's teaching today was perfect. Jesus died for us. What does that mean? What does it mean that someone died for you? Generally, when we say something like that, we mean they died instead of you, right? If I push somebody out of the way of an oncoming train and I die, I died for them. 
right? And so the idea is that Jesus has died for us, in my place, for my sin. Jesus died for us. Why did he do that? So that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. And, and I just would ask you this morning, do you have the assurance that if you die, that you'll be with Jesus? Not that you have some kind of like, well, I hope so. Cross my fingers. But no, do you have an assurance that why did Jesus come? He came so that we could be with God. And we will be with him when we die. And then in the future, when we get those resurrection bodies that we're looking forward to, that will never break down, that will be able to withstand the presence of a holy God without getting blown off Mount Sinai like, like Moses, right? He'd be hidden in the cleft of the rock. No, we will have bodies, resurrection bodies like Jesus' body that will allow us to be in the presence of God. We will be with him. Which echoes the picture from last week that Paul said that when Jesus comes and the dead are raised and the people that are alive will be caught up together, so we will always be with the Lord. That is the promise. That is what we look forward to. So what, what are we talking about here? Well, we're talking about end times. We're talking about eschatology. We're talking about the end. And if we are not careful, we can get so caught up in intellectual curiosity and beating somebody in an argument, my chart's better than your chart. We've totally lost sight of what's going on if we do that. What is the point? Verse 11. Therefore, if all of this is true, post your chart in a place prominent in your house so everyone can see it. Is that what it says? Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. The fact that Jesus died for us, it's not said here, but it's said earlier that he's raised for us, and that he's coming back for us, gives us great reason to be encouraged. I think that is why we're so encouraged by singing. One of the things that Christians have, that is something that very few other religions have, is that we just, we're a singing people. We have a whole book in the Bible that's songs. We come together and we sing. And, and we, we miss doing that, don't we, by the way? There's, a, there's, I don't know, a couple dozen people in here right now, and it just doesn't sound the same. And I know when I'm at my house singing on a Sunday morning, um, although it does sound rather lovely with our voices, uh, it is not the same as singing all together. And we're encouraged by that because we sing truths, and their truths then reinforce our hearts. So you come on a Sunday morning and you're down and you're sad or you're happy or you're glad or you're content or you're discontent or somebody died or you got a job promotion, you got a raise or you lost your job. We come with all of these different things and we come together and we sing truths about God that encourage us. And that is what we're to do. We're to encourage one another and to build one another up. So we don't just satisfy our intellectual curiosity. In fact, now we're given motivation to proactively encourage one another. So listen, if this doesn't sound encouraging to you yet, you either need to plead with the Lord to open your eyes, or you need to think, have I believed this gospel? Because if death has been defeated, there is nothing more encouraging. There is nothing more encouraging. Then he says, build one another up. Well, he says encourage. And what does encourage mean? Well, it it can mean to comfort. Um, Sometimes it can mean a little bit more leaning towards like, hey, come on, man, let's go. Right? Like a little bit more of exhortation. But there's a comfort and exhortation. But it literally means to to give somebody courage, right? To put courage in somebody else. 
I'm going to give you courage. Courage, right? I need that from somebody else to do that in, in a group. Okay? I need to give you courage. Please give me courage to move forward. Not only that, we, we build one another up. And so the, the picture changes to, to construction. Okay? We, we build one another up. And it shows the collaborative nature of church, which is why we need to be together. And why we have to work hard to reach out to one another. Because you build me up and I build you up. This is not a solo construction project. We don't shout over the fence, how's it going over there? No, we, we, well, we don't climb over the fence. We probably go through the front door. But we go to our neighbors and we join in the construction project. It's a group construction project. The church is being built up as souls help one another, as people get into each other's lives. So all of this being true means we have a message for our brothers and sisters. And we, we even have that message when we don't feel that message being true. Yeah, you know that? Like someone tells you to, to keep going, to hang in there, to do your best. God's for you. And, some of, and those things are true, but sometimes they don't ring true, right? They're, they're hollow. And that's when we fight um, to, 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 to get the feeling to come back at some point, but to know the assurance that God is for me because how, how could I doubt someone who sent his own son to die on a tree in my place for my sin? So we've got to keep it up. We've got to keep doing this. And, and we've seen many creative ways this has happened over the last two months with um, people visiting and cards. We, we found um, a, a note with uh, a little gift on our mailbox yesterday. That was fun. And we've seen different things on social media. And we've, we've, we've not seen things that I know many of you are doing and you don't want recognition. And that's great. So keep doing that. Let, let's, when we get back to normal, when we're able to meet again, let's not forget the creative ways that we've, We've learned to be of service to one another, to encourage one another. So many, so much more snail mail than in the past. Maybe we should, maybe we should keep that up. Maybe that shouldn't go away. Um, but I hear the post office needs our help anyway, so we should continue to buy those stamps and send those. Um, but let's, let's continue to do that. Why? Because Jesus has come. Why? Because Jesus is coming. Why? Because we're all going to die. And we must face that fact. It may not mean having a skull on your desk, but having the skull in your thoughts may be helpful. Life is short. What matters? And if Jesus is returning to judge the living and the dead, what does that mean? Folks, we have a good message to tell people that they can know that judgment day does not consist of a bunch of robots blowing everything up with nuclear bombs. And even if it does, we have hope that we will be with God, whether we're awake or whether we're asleep. Father, we think of the end times, the hysteria that sometimes even now is engulfing um, our world. Lord, we pray that you would help us, Christians the world over, to have good news, to share faith, hope, and love with those who have none, that we might tell them the good news of Jesus, and that we might believe it on, our, on those really dark days, those hard times in our lives, that even though we don't feel it, even when we don't know if we believe it, that we would plead with you as that man did to Jesus, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Pray you would be with those right now who are in that situation, that they would ask you and keep asking you and pester you at the throne of grace to help them to believe. Lord, I thank you for the promise 
that whether we're awake or asleep, that we'll be with you. God, I do ask that you would bring us back together as a church in the near future, that we would be able to do that um, uh, with, uh, within guidelines, that we would be caring for one another, that we would uh, not judge one another for different decisions made during this time, but that we would welcome one another. And Lord, that as we come back together, Lord willing, that we would um, just reappreciate the great responsibility, but also the privilege and the joy of coming together as the body of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.